Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, where you'll get the latest trends and legal business initiatives that help you manage your law firm every day. Hear from the experts setting the standards for legal, insurance, compliance, and tools of the profession. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Here's the host of the Legal Toolkit, Jared Correa. Welcome to another crisp episode of the fall season for the Legal Toolkit, appearing only on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jared Correa, and in addition to casting this pod, I'm also the Senior Law Practice Advisor for the Massachusetts LOMAP. LOMAP provides free and confidential law practice management consulting services to Massachusetts attorneys. For more information on LOMAP's offerings, visit our website at masslomap.org or like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash masslomap. You can also now buy my book, Twitter in One Hour for Lawyers, from the American Bar Association. Before we begin, I'd like to take some time to thank our sponsor, Clio, for web-based practice management. Find out more at goclio.com. On the Legal Toolkit, we provide you each month with a new tool to add to your own legal toolkit so that your practices will become more and more like best practices. This episode of the Legal Toolkit is, as you might suspect, no different. Today, we're going to address entity choice for lawyers and law firms. Joining me now are Kiara LaPlume and Sophia Lingos. Kiara, appearing for a second time on the toolkit, represents individuals and businesses in real estate and corporate transactions through LaPlume Law LLC in Lexington, Massachusetts, flashpoint for the American Revolution. Sophia represents small businesses and entrepreneurs as the principal of the Boston-based Lingos Law Firm. She is also an adjunct professor at Northeastern University School of Law. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us today. Oh, it's our pleasure. All right, let's roll. What's a DBA or doing business as certificate? And when do you need to have one and how do you get one? Sophia, let's start with you. So a doing business as certificate, otherwise known as a DBA, is state an often town-specific filing for an individual or group of persons engaged in trade and not otherwise operating under a legal structure. The requirements for filing one do vary drastically. Some states don't even have a DBA certificate. Within Massachusetts, filings are based on city and town-specific requirements, and many other states handle them at the state level. In general, a DBA is your official registration of your business name, often referred to as your fictitious business name or an assumed name. Now, DBAs are not just for your sole proprietors or general it's also if you're a corporation or an LLC that wants to do business under a different name than your actual corporate name, and then you might also need to file for a DBA. In some cases, if you're operating a business under your own name, for example, Lingos Law, you are not required to file. But the term own name is kind of a term of art up for interpretation. Mm-hmm. As soon as law is added after my name, the question is always, does that change anything? And depending on where you are, the responses are mixed. And therefore, the trend is really towards registering even your own name if you're going to use it to operate a business. This is because the DBA isn't just for a legal and licensing matter. It's actually a concern of consumer affairs. And clients want to have access to all the required information for a person or persons with whom they're doing business. Additionally, this might be a requirement if you want to open a business bank account and you're not otherwise a legal entity. So I guess, and the other question is, so how do you file one? Mm-hmm. Uh, usually this is not an onerous process. The applications can usually be procured from either your secretary of state or the town hall in the city where your office is located. It's often only a one-page form asking for your basic information regarding your business, filing fee much lower than forming other legal entities, 
and the length of the license is, is often for more than one year. If you fail to register, the penalty can far outweigh the cost. Again, this is state-specific, but in Massachusetts, the cost for filing varies from about $20 to $50, depending on the city and town is valid for four years. Whereas the fine for not filing for the appropriate license can be up to $300 per month during the time period where such violation occurs. So wow. <laughs> we always operate as a general rule. If you are operating as a sole proprietor, general partnership, or have another reason to file, you might as well file for a DBA certificate if your state has one available. It will it will be most beneficial. So, yeah, the short answer is uh, in most cases, in almost all cases, you should be filing. Um, thanks, Sophia. Kiara, do you have anything to add to that? Well, thank you, Jared. Um, so just generally speaking, I think that um, with law firms as with other business concerns, something to keep in mind while choosing a name for your business is whether there is a domain name that can be registered that has uh, that contains the business name um, and also just general trademark concerns. In other words, is there somebody who does what you're doing and has a very similar name? You probably want to be um, differentiated, you, you probably would want to stand out, and I'm sure that they would feel the same way too. Um, specifically to law firms, um, there are rules of professional conduct in Massachusetts which say that you can use a trade name that's specifically permitted by Rule 7.5 here in Massachusetts. And that means that if I want to do business as the Boston Immigration Center or, or something that does not contain my name at all, that is fine in and of itself as long as it's not confusing the public or misleading. Um, and on on that same note of false or misleading information, um, the name of a firm is supposed to not be false or misleading. Um, and that's pursuant to Rule 7.1. What that has been read to mean in Massachusetts and in most other states, but there are differences between one state and the other, is, for example, that if I am a true solo, don't have any employees, I cannot call myself La Plume Group because that would imply that there is a whole group of people that are mm -hmm. potentially there to assist clients. Um, and... Uh, and there are other restrictions on, you know, let's say partners that have moved on and things of that nature. Um, so that's something else to keep in mind when choosing a name. Excellent practical tips there, Kiara. Thank you, especially for lawyers, uh, traps for the unwary to watch out for. So there's really a paucity of information out there respecting choice of entity that's targeted to lawyers and law firms. And I do appreciate your coming on the show today to fill the gap in just a little bit. So... What are some general considerations for lawyers who are looking at selecting a legal structure for their firm? So let's begin with you this time, Kiara. Uh, just as a, as a way of introduction, so I actually took a poll in April of 2009 um, that was a nationwide poll, and it was only addressed to solos. And I asked them, did you even create an entity that was a separate legal entity? Um, and more than half said no. About 27% created an LLC or a variation thereof, and about 18% created a corporation or a variation thereof. And so I asked them, the, these people who answered, keep in mind, were only solos, um, if you created a separate entity, why did you create a legal entity? And the answers just varied incredibly. Um, but some of them are limitation of tort liability other than professional liability, and limitation of contractual liability um, to separate out the business from the personal, 
for marketing or professional image um, reasons in terms of what they felt their clients would expect of them. Um, some were required by their lender when they went to apply for a working capital loan to create an entity, and they were specific about what entity they sent them off to create. Mm-hmm. Some were trying to reduce self-employment tax. Um, some were concerned with scalability or ease of growth, especially if they were expecting to grow and hire employees in the near future. Um, some were concerned about um, trying to be effective about the cost of health insurance premiums. And some wanted to maximize their retirement savings. Um, so again, this was a national poll and it was only for solos. So then the next question is, um, you know, how does that play out even more if somebody is not a solo and they're practicing with other attorneys? So I just hinted at this, but as attorneys, if we create an entity, that does not shield us for um, personal liability from our own malpractice. And this is stated quite clearly in Massachusetts in our SJC Rule 306, which for those of you who will want to Google this after the fact, is written 3 colon 06. Um, and that says each owner of essentially a, a legal entity shall be personally liable for damages which arise out of the performance of legal services on behalf of the entity and which are caused by his or her own negligence or wrongful acts, errors, or remissions. So it is crystal clear that as with torts in general, uh, we're responsible for the negligent actions or omissions that we did or failed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the question then becomes, can I be responsible for my business partner's negligence? And the answer is that if you just do business together so that there is a joint venture or a general partnership and there is no legal entity, Yes, you would be responsible. Um, so by creating an entity, you can try to control that and become only responsible for your own malpractice. Um, there are also insurance requirements, which we'll look at um, in more detail later on in the program, but uh, there is a way to limit your own liability, which is a great reason to create uh, a separate legal entity, especially if you're going to have employees or if there are going to be more than um, if there's going to be more than one attorney practicing at the firm. Other concerns, as I've hinted at in my survey results, are tax. Um, so not just liability limitation, but also tax. And um, God created CPAs for a reason, so I strongly suggest that you go and see a certified public accountant to determine what specifically would work best for your situation. Um, some of the answer would, in part, depend on your projected gross income, whether you were planning on having employees, whether you were planning on having the company own any real estate, um, whether you were good with estimated taxes or whether that would just mess you up and you would definitely want to be paying taxes as you went. And um, I've heard very, very specific advice being provided by CPAs, specific enough to relate to the cost of car insurance or health care. Um, that would depend very much on the specifics of um, the firm looking or the, the attorney looking to choose what entity fits them best. So um, for specifics on tax, I would defer to a CPA. 
Um, and then, uh, Sophia, can you help me with the rest? Absolutely. Thank you. So building off Kiara, let me start with, as you mentioned, the two primary concerns in selecting a legal entity are limiting liability and tax considerations. And I'll delve into those more specifically when addressing the specific characteristics of the entities that are available for attorneys. But here's kind of just a laundry list of other things you should be thinking about when choosing your legal structure. The first thing are who are the interested parties and what is their ownership interest? So are you a sole owner or do you have partners? If you're forming a law firm of partners, you almost invariably want to form a legal structure, and you're going to want to look closely at each partner's external situations and needs when selecting one. You're also going to want to consider the organization of management and control and what authorities others are going to have to bind you to important decisions. Mm-hmm. The expenses. How much is it going to cost to register and file annually? What additional costs might be incurred by bringing on an accountant or other staff? Following corporate formalities can often be a burden, but you could get your practice into trouble if... Uh, you don't attend to these um, separately. Mm-hmm. You want to think through your exit strategy. What is your plan regarding the continuity of existence, transferability? We obviously form legal structures to manage risk, so how risk tolerant or adverse are you in your practice? Just my advice, but your livelihood is not something that should be gambled with. And finally, or often first, what is your method of capitalization? Unless you're in DC, you can't have non lawyer investors, but are you going to take out a loan? Have each partner buy in, offer partnership shares, or your property for your office. You need to think whether you want to take on these debts as an individual or as an entity. So that being said, what are the entity choices available to lawyers and law firms? Sophia? So with regard to specific entities available, the answer is, again, state-dependent. To begin with mm-hmm. the basics, you have your sole proprietorship and general partnership. These are unregistered entities that are formed by you merely holding yourself out to be doing business with either an individual, therefore a sole proprietorship, or with one or more others creating a general partnership. Um, These are the easiest business organizations to form, and accounting is often less burdensome. They're also the riskiest. And so as an individual owner or owners, you're going to have no separate existence from the entity and invoke personal liability. Uh, For a sole proprietorship, Income or loss of the business is accounted for through the individual's tax return via pass-through taxation, and the owner must pay self-employment taxes through one's personal income tax return. Again, with the general partnership, taxes are paid through the owner's personal tax return, and the partnership will then file an informational income tax return with IRS. So, for some attorneys, this whole proprietorship may be the best structure to begin with, but do remember that any potential liability incurred while a sole proprietor or general partner can't be removed by filing later down the road. You're also going to want to consider branding, as Kiara spoke about earlier when you're thinking about a name. Once you've formed a legal entity, you're required to have the suffix as part of your legal name. So, how is that going to reflect in wherever you've already put yourself out there to be? If you're looking for liability protection taxation considerations by filing another legal structure, the first places you're going to want to go are to the Board of Bar Overseers and the Secretary of State's office to see where you reside, what is available to you as an attorney. Some states are going to require you to show good standing with a bar and form a professional entity. Others require you to register your limited liability entity with the bar after formed, and some states won't even allow you to form some forms of limited liability entities. So that we're going to go through a list of things that are most popular and, and that you might, might be able to consider. Make sure that you go to these places first to make sure this is something that, that does exist within your particular state. Also important to note is that when you're forming this and you're looking to limit your liability, it does not protect you from your personal malpractice claims. It can protect you from non-tort disputes such as contract claims, employment matters, 
and hopefully shield you from personal liability of the malpractice by employees or partners. And those are some important things to consider when you're practicing with more than one attorney. Um, so here are some of the available legal structures. The first one is a limited liability company. This can be for either a single member LLC or if there are more than one member and they are treated a little bit differently. The LLCs are a relatively new form of business structure in the U.S. and are rapidly becoming the legal structure of choice. An LLC is created by filing with the state in which you practice, and it's going to provide the limited liability protection of the company without the corporate hassle formalities, and it's also going to allow for pass-through partnership taxation. The next one would be a limited partnership, which is a business relationship that consists of two or more people with at least one general partner who has unlimited general liability and one limited partner whose liability is limited to the amount of their investment. Taxation in this place is going to depend on the organization of the entity. Going further than that, you can actually do a limited liability partnership, which is similar to the limited partnership, except all members enjoy the limited liability protection, and the entity is going to be taxed via pass-through taxation of a partnership. And then a professional corporation is a corporate structure for professional service providers, not just attorneys, but there are other individuals who do have some stringent requirements, as do we, that will be working in industries um, and a PC does not usually provide the owners the same limit liability as other corporate structures, unfortunately, but it should protect one from the individual malpractice liability of another and, even though, as, as I mentioned, not from the malpractice liability of their own. A PC can perform one service and only one service once it's created in the specific industry and the other members of the PC can only be members within that organization as well. So that makes it a little bit a little bit more difficult, but as we know, uh, right now, as attorneys, we can only have any of these with other attorneys except having investors in D.C. The one other thing to think about when you're thinking about if you're going to do a professional corporation is some places will allow you to do to file as an S corporation. So after you form your professional corporation, depending on your size and organization, if you make the qualifications, you can file as an S corp, um, which is an election of your tax status, and it allows you to... It affects the taxation issues, the income, gains, losses, deductions. They're all passed through in proportion to one's ownership shares. So that's just one additional thing to consider when you're looking at the different liability structures. So these are just a few of them. In there, Some of them have the same qualifications, but in different states have different names. So just make sure you look at what, what your state has available. Well then, not a bad rundown, Sophia. Now let's go back to you, Kiara. You talked a little bit about limited liability entities under the Mass uh, Supreme Judicial Court Rule 306. Any other special rules for attorneys or law firms as uh, respects those types of entities? Um, yes. I mean, as Sophia mentioned, uh, lawyers are regulated. We're not the only ones that are regulated, but we're certainly regulated. And um, that does mean that there are some uh, little quirks and things that apply to law firms and lawyers specifically. So, for example, when creating an entity, um, one would need to file a certificate of good standing for every owner of um, a legal entity. Um, this would be obtained from the SJC. It can be requested by email, um, and it needs to be filed with the organization documents pursuant to SJC Rule 306 again that states that all owners must be licensed attorneys. All owners of a law firm must be licensed attorneys. Um, there are also some other little quirks. So, for example, when filing annual reports, sometimes um, there is nothing in even a, a state's 
form that indicates that a statement about insurance is required, but yet if you go in ahead and try to file an annual report with the Secretary of State, it will be returned for failure to recite magic language with regard to insurance. Um, and staying on the subject of insurance, there are insurance requirements pursuant to the SJC rules. Um, law firms can self-insure, meaning that they can put money aside, large amounts of money aside, in the in the event that um, a, a client were to sue for malpractice, for example. Um, the formulas are complicated. Um, the the succinct rundown is that a minimum of fifty thousand dollars plus fifteen thousand multiplied by the total number of practicing attorneys at the firm with a maximum of not to exceed five hundred thousand um, is what is required in order for somebody else's malpractice to not become your personal liability. Um, and if we took corporations in law school, although it might have been a long while ago, we probably did remember cases with regard to taxis and insufficient insurance, meaning piercing of the corporate veil, and that's essentially um, where this rule comes from. Uh, there, there needs to be a very minimum uh, amount of insurance in place or self-insurance in place in order for the entity to be respected um, and the other's liabilities to not necessarily be your liability, your personal liability also. In addition to this... Um, entity-related insurance rule. There are also practical um, considerations when purchasing insurance and determining how much insurance to purchase. So, for example, if you're going to be in a referral list, sometimes there are minimum insurance requirements. If you're going to be writing title insurance for a real estate title insurance company, uh, one million is the bare minimum from what I can tell, um, but it's heading towards two million from what I can tell. So yeah. those are some other concerns. Um, in addition to that, as I mentioned, all owners of a law firm must be attorneys. Mm-hmm. And there are other limitations in SGC Rule 306. Um, I'm going to read some of these off to you. All owners shall be, which means must be, individuals who, except for temporary absences due to illness or accident, time spent in the armed services of the United States, vacation and leave of absence not to exceed two years, are actively engaged in the practice of law as employees or owners of the entity. Then it goes on to say, any owners who cease to be eligible to be an owner shall be required to dispose of his or her shares or other ownership interests as soon as reasonably possible. So what does this mean? This means that there need need to be provisions in place when dealing with law firms for periods of absence, and for immediate transfer of interest away from an executor, administrator, or personal representative, as they are now known in Massachusetts, and back into the firm or to the remaining owners of the firm that have survived. Hmm. All right. Thanks, Sophia and Chiara. I appreciate it. Now, we've covered a lot in the first half of the show, and we've got some more to cover, too. But for now, let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll have more with Sophia Lingos and Chiara LaPlume. But now, a word from our sponsor. Cleo. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Cleo. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the 
power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. So I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the, the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Want to stay in touch with the Legal Talk Network and get our shows automatically? RSS provides home delivery. You don't have to remember where to click. The good stuff comes right to you automatically and free. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and hit the RSS button at the top of the page. It says our podcast feeds. Now you'll be all set. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. All right, so let's get back into it here on the second half of our program. We're joined today by Chiara LaPlume, principal of LaPlume Law, LLC, and Sophia Lingos, principal of Lingos Law. And we covered a lot of ground in the first half of the podcast, such that we only have time for a couple quick questions in the second half of the show here. So let's get back into it. Why is it so important to have an agreement between partners under whatever entity a partnership selects? And uh, Kiara, uh, you can take this one. Sure. Uh, so in terms of nomenclature, um, in terms of a general partnership or an LLP, the agreement would be called a partnership agreement. In terms of corporation, it would be called a shareholders agreement. Um, and in terms of an LLC, it would be called an operating agreement. Um, so for just to not confuse myself and, and the listeners, I'll just generally call them partnership agreements. But mm-hmm. as you mentioned, um, those are important uh, whenever there's more than one person um, that is the owner of, a, of an entity. Um, so this is almost like a prenup. You need to figure out some stuff ahead of time um, so that as things change, during the course of time and as things might end, as they almost inevitably do with a law firm, although that's not necessarily uh, the case with uh, a marriage, um, things can continue on in a civil way. And I have had conversations with attorneys where once they sat down, they realized they were in the same area of practice, but their client base was completely different. There was no overlap, and everybody thought that the other person was going to be the rainmaker. So it's really important to have some of these conversations early on. Um, things to be addressed are things such as contributions, which could include an initial contribution, but also if there's a cash flow issue later on. Uh, compensation is absolutely crucial. Compensation goes to whether people feel that this is a continuing, productive, positive relationship for them, or whether they get to the point where they get frustrated and they want to be done. Um, also, in terms of dissolution, the reality is that build-up of a law firm can be painful and there can be cash flow woes. And once you get over that hump, um, you know, things get better. So if you leave early because, uh, you know, this is a rough road that can be at the beginning, then um, you should maybe be compensated a little bit less for leaving early um, than, you know, once you put in the time and you've helped to really grow the firm to where it, it can be 
profitable. Um, and it's also important to have indemnification language in there so that the firm insurance um, will cover you as long as, of course, what you're doing is negligence and not anything intentional. Um, so going back to compensation for one second. So we have the equal partnership. I think we all intuitively know what that means. Uh, you put in equal amounts of money. You take out, after paying all the bills, equal amounts of money. Um, that is idealistic. It's very nice. Um, it only works for smaller firms, and it can create some problems of incentivization. The polar opposite of that is eat what you kill, where everybody does their own thing, that does their own marketing. They pay for their own secretary. They pay for hours of associates from the firm and hope to make that money back by billing the associate out at a greater rate than they're purchasing the time of the associate from the firm. Um, everything is done very separately, but of course, it, that does not necessarily promote the health of the firm as a whole. So there are lots of things that can be done in between, including the Hale and Door system, which we Boston attorneys are perhaps proud of, um, since the Hale and Door attorney, I believe, was created in Boston in the 40s. Um, and those those items that should be addressed include generation, meaning if I bring in a client, I should I should have that counted for me, uh, minding the client or, or general client responsibility, um, administrative work. Nobody wants to do it, but it still all needs to be done for the bills to go out in time and for things to go on. If a legal patch to show up in the in the conference room when we need them. Um, <laughs> people want to be compensated for the actual work they put in, the actual sweat equity on the case that they're working on. And um, another factor is the overall health of the firm, I'm trying to maybe promote more um, of a unified way of looking at the firm, which can be more important to some people than, than to others. So this mm -hmm. is something that need, people need to sit down and talk about before they really go into business with each other, I believe. Absolutely. Um, so we have time for one more question here. Um, there are some potentially thorny issues in play, which we've discovered. Should attorneys then even though they're lawyers themselves, hire another attorney to help them out? And what other service professionals would they be looking for to consult in creating an entity? And uh, Sophia, this one's all yours. There should be at least three people on your team when you're planning out a best limit your liability and properly take into account your tax considerations. Your attorney, your accountant, or other financial service provider, and your insurance agent. I represent a number of lawyers and law firms from beginning formation stages, restructuring, mergers, acquisitions, and even dissolutions. And sometimes I'll meet with attorneys to just give them an hour of my time to try and assist them in proceeding independently if they wish to do so. They almost always come back. If you are on your own and you and you are just going to form a simple entity, you may be able to do so. Maybe your best option is trying to get a, an hour of someone's time if this is not your area of expertise. And then the filing of the forms is not that difficult. However, if there's more than one individual involved, having outside counsel work through the partnership or operating agreement, as Kara just went through, uh, challenging you to address the difficult conversations up front is incredibly important. It's an additional benefit to have someone keeping you on track. A lot of times we find people where we're going through the dissolution stage with the operating agreement, and they, we realize it wasn't signed. I'm glad that you worked through all these considerations, but making sure someone makes sure that you have finished each step of going through the formation of this relationship. Second most important person to consult is an accountant or other financial advisor. You want to discuss your tax considerations with them. As an attorney, our finances are not always that simple, and you're going to want to work with someone who is going to think through your existing and potential future obligations, taking account that of your family and of each partner. 
Finally, your insurance provider, as we can only limit liability so much, you're going to want to know how to fill those holes with insurance, whether it's malpractice, property casualty, disability, practice interruption. Having proper insurance is a necessary piece of your limited liability plan. Absolutely. Well, uh, I don't know about you two, but I'm pretty spent. Um, And it looks like we've reached the end of the legal toolkit. Remember that you can check out all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. So my special thanks goes out to Sophia Lingos and Kiara LaPlume for taking some time to drop by the virtual studio. Uh, Kiara, if you, if uh, any of our listeners want to find out more about you and what you do, how would they go about doing so? Um, well, they would wait until I've finished cleaning up my website, and then they would go to LaPlumeLaw.com. Um, otherwise, I can be found on LinkedIn, and I'm always happy to receive a phone call if somebody has a quick question. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, how about you, Sophia? You can find me online at www.lingoslaw, that's L-I-N-G-O-S-L-A-W.com. You can also email me at sophia, S-O-F-I-A, dot lingos, at lingoslaw.com. You can call our office at 617-695-0009, and you can look for me at all different forms of social media. I'll be there. All right. Thanks again, uh, Sophia and Kiara. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks out there to everybody online for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Legal Toolkit. You can subscribe to the RSS feed and hear Jared every month right here on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.